The air we breathe, the water we drink, the soil that grows food for our families. These basic elements are essential to healthy, happy lives. America's corn growers think so too. Across the country, they're pitching in every day and doing the work to produce food and fuel that is healthy in a sustainable way. Go to ncga.com to learn more about how corn farmers grow a more sustainable future for us all. That's ncga.com. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. I think today's episode is uh, set up for a lot of things. Probably going to want to pay attention very closely because uh, I'm not going to spell it all out. But if you've been listening for a while, you're probably quite prepared. A lot of this here needs to be uh, considered on several levels, depending on how your lens is adjusted. This is who killed Teresa. Cases that that linger in our minds are the ones where no one theory fully satisfies an explanation of the facts. And I was talking about this puzzle the other day with my former spouse, Elizabeth. She said she had once again become a little obsessed with the Jean Benet Ramsey case. At different times in her life, when she'd considered the evidence, she'd come to suspect the mother or the father, then a stranger. This time she was convinced it was Jean Benet's brother that did it. An old friend from Canada discovered I now worked in Durham and asked if I had seen The Staircase, the the Netflix documentary about convicted murderer Michael Peterson. Yes, in fact, I used to see Peterson around City Hall when he was the City Hall reporter for the Herald's Sun. Really? What do you think happened? 
the owl did it, of course. It's even true with my sister's case, specifically where she was and where she was going the night she died. The simplest explanation is that on Friday, November 3rd, 1978, she hitchhiked from the town of Lennoxville to the school residence nine miles away in Compton. She never made it to her dorm room because the person that picked her up murdered her and dumped her body about a mile before the Compton city limits. Then, how to account for the testimony of a fellow Compton boarder, Sharon Buzzy, who claimed to have talked to her on the residence staircase around 9 p.m. the same evening. So this leads to the second explanation. Teresa did make it back to her dorm. She briefly went about her business, then decided to walk into Compton to buy cigarettes at the local watering hole entre deux. It was only then she was abducted, murdered, then dumped on the outskirts of the village. Neither of these are very satisfying explanations. Theory number one is the cleanest, but what to make of Sharon Buzzy's account? Buzzy has repeated over decades that she did not mistake which evening it was when the staircase encounter occurred. Further, she cites specific information that correctly identifies that it could have only been on Friday, November 3rd, that the conversation on the staircase took place. That some of that conversation mentioned specifically the important playoff game the football team had the following day. It could only have been that evening that they conversed because there was only one important playoff game for the Champlain Cougars in the fall of 1978. The game the next day, Saturday, November 4th, was a first-round match. The Vanier Cheetahs routed the Cougars 50-3, and Champlain was eliminated from the playoffs. Theory number two makes sense were it not for an increasing stack of improbabilities. For this theory to work, you'd have to believe that Sharon Buzzy was practically the only person who saw or remembered seeing Teresa around 9 p.m. that November evening. It was said it was a quiet night uh, in the dorms at King's Hall on November 3rd, but this was the home to over 200 students. Surely someone else would have remembered seeing her? Equally problematic, you, you now have to believe that Teresa survived the hitchhiking experience only to fall victim to a predator who is lurking in a car along a one-mile corridor between the student residence and the watering hole entre deux. Possible, I suppose, but mm, somewhat unsatisfying. Teresa wouldn't hitchhike a lift because it's such a short distance. So we're now left with her being pulled into a car against her will. She would not have done that without putting up considerable resistance. And there are houses all along that route, on small plots, very close to the road, and on and on it goes, like some reductive ad absurdum Escher painting.
1975 murders of Diane Deary and Mario Corbet are a similar puzzle. The pieces keep shuffling around in our mind because no explanation seems completely satisfying. If they were shot in the woods by uh, disgruntled neighborhood kids, how did those kids get there? Were they lurking in the woods waiting to entrap Diane and Mario? Not probable. Did they run down the block outpacing Mario's motorcycle? Impossible. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, and I think before offering some new information, let's start, let's go back and provide a summary of what we know so far, including some new facts that were disclosed in um, a Radio Canada documentary called uh, Le, Der uh, Le Dernier Soir. The series recently aired again on uh, Quebec television. Thirteen-year-old Diane Deary and fifteen-year-old Mario Corbet both lived near Boulevard uh, Roland Terrien in the suburb of Langueil, just southeast off the island of Montreal. It was around supper time on the evening of Tuesday, May 20th, 1975, and Mario was enjoying uh, his new red Kawasaki motorbike. His parents had given it to him as a present. Mario had offered several rides to his friends, and, and this is important, up and down the main drag of Roland Terrien, which ended um, southeast of their homes, turning into a gravel road and eventually a wooded area just before uh, Langueil ends and the town of Saint-Hubert begins at just at the edge of the Canadian Forces base, CFB Saint-Hubert. Around uh, 8 p.m., uh, Mario gave a ride to Diandiri. Both were apparently, possibly, sweet on each other. They disappeared into the wooded area, and this is the last time they're seen alive. A search began around 10 p.m., but turned up nothing. The next morning, around 7.30 a.m., Deary and Corbet were found in a field near the woods where they were last seen riding. Mario had been shot six times, twice in the head, through the right jaw and the right side of the head, once in the right of his back, then exiting through the right lower neck, in his right buttock, his right thigh, and in the left bicep. Diane had been shot twice, the head and the chest. The shot to the chest, through her armpit, was determined to have occurred at close range. Diane was lying on her back. She had been possibly raped or sexually assaulted, and there's much speculation over this. 
Mario's body had been placed on top of Diane's, and there had been bleeding around his rectum area, suggesting to some that he too may have been sexually assaulted. This next part that I'm about to share with you comes from the Quebec researcher Eric Villette. Eric maintains the website Historiquement Logique, and he's one of the few to explicitly ask the question, was this a sex crime? Not even the police in that era gave any meaningful consideration to this possibility. No analysis is ever mentioned of any samples such as sperm or hairs, though we know that a hair was collected off of Mario, which wasn't his. You, you have to keep in mind this is 1975, so pretty much a pre-forensics era, but it's still curious. As well, the uh, autopsy and police reports never explicitly state whether Diane and Mario were naked or clothed. We presume naked because the report does mention marks on Diane's back attributed to scratches from branches or thick grass. Villette asks, if they were naked, then why? Was this staged? Was this a sexual crime? Here, there, there's a lengthy quote from Eric, and I'm just going to read it, starting here. If this staging is true, then consideration should perhaps be given to the possibility that the victims were placed in this position while they were still alive which would automatically entail the element of humiliation. This theory seems to find support with firing trajectories. Most of the trajectories of the projectiles that hit Mario Corbet suggest that the shots were fired from different directions and while he was lying on his stomach. Either there was only one shooter who moved between each shot or there were multiple shooters. In fact, it may suggest that Diane and Mario were forced to strip naked while alive to create this humiliating scene. Diane was forced to lie down first, and Mario on top of her. Then, did the attackers force them to do certain things many questions this is this is back to me now i'm not quoting many questions have surrounded the weapon used the 22 caliber kui sure shot rifle though lethal it was considered a starter rifle for young boys in a previous uh, post and podcast i don't know if i Put it in a podcast, but I had pointed out that the Kui was marketed to young boys in the sporting advertisements of local newspapers during Easter of 1975. 
Le dernier soir suggested that Diane may have been shot off the back of Mario's motorcycle first. Um, though many have since pointed out that the Kui was probably too small a caliber rifle to do this. In fact, some have offered that because of its small caliber, that a Kui couldn't have been the weapon at all. Eric Villette gives a plausible explanation for the use of the Kui. And again, I'm quoting from him. He says, After shooting Mario, they may have realized that the small caliber projectiles had not completely passed through Mario's body and that Diane was still alive. Thus, one or two shooters would have bent over to make the two fatal shots. In fact, the two shootings of which Diane was the victim could have been perfectly made while Mario was lying over her. One entered through the armpit and the other behind the head as she tried, perhaps in vain, to look away from one of the shooters. Having offered this plausible, possible explanation, Villette then suggests a pretty good theory as to the type of person or persons who may have committed the murders. He says, At the very least, premeditation of the murder of Diane is practically impossible, since the shooter or shooters could not have predicted in advance that Diane would be on Mario's ride. Was the meeting in the woods accidental? Was there a confrontation? Did the shooter or shooters have accounts to settle? Or was it only the gratuitous crime of a future psychopath? Dernier Soir offers a very detailed, logically thought out, methodically researched, and expertly presented profile suggesting the following suspect or suspects for the murders of Diane and Mario. A teenager, perhaps a group of teenagers, with a ringleader, accustomed to hunting or taking target practice in those woods, perhaps someone who held a grudge against Mario. And a band of marauding youths would not be out of character with what we know of Langi in this era. Two weeks before the Diri Corbet murders, the Gazette reported on a teen crime wave sweeping the Montreal area with 47% of all crimes in the first three months of 1975, having been committed by persons younger than 20. The chief suspect posited in uh, Le Dernier Soir documentary grew up to become an influential member of organized crime in the Montreal area. Eventually, he became so dangerous that the Canadian government exiled him back to France, 
where he was born. At the end of the six-part documentary, we are left feeling frustrated and helpless, knowing that this person will probably never be brought to justice. This is one theory. I can tell you now that not even the producers of Le Dernier Soir were fully confident in what they had put forward. Le Dernier Soir's uh, argument was largely based on hitherto unknown historical police documents discovered in the vaults of the Quebec National Library, Banque. Though it's news to us when we see it in the production, much of this information couldn't have been a secret to the people of Langueil in 1975. In a rare display of police transparency, Langueil detectives showed their entire case and strategy in an article in La Presse two weeks after the discovery of the bodies. In this article, journalist Normand Gilles reveals the hypothesis of a sexual maniac hunting the woods of Langui in search of innocent young girls is now excluded. At least that's what the police investigation into the double assassination of Diandiri, 13, and her motorcycle companion, Mario Corbet, 15, whose bullet hole filled bodies were found in a field bordering Avenue Vaucalin and Longuet have concluded. Police now believe the two teenagers were shot dead by three or four young men under the age of 20, who were practicing 22 rifle shooting. Teenagers who were seen in the same place practicing their favorite sport in the days preceding the crime have not returned since and are the subject of an intense search by the police. Sergeant Detective Renaud Lacombe then goes on to lay out his entire theory as to what he thinks happened. Lacombe explained the double murders this way. The young couple would enter the wooded area and one of the shooters takes a shot near the girl to scare her, but the shot accidentally hits the girl in the arm, and this provokes Mario. There would be a fight, and the shooters would then open fire on the two, principally on Mario. They would finally try to disguise what had happened. So the, the, the French wording is, is weird here, but the implication is clear. The disguise was the sexual assault. <laughs> wait, wait, what? What? They, they sexually assaulted Diane and possibly Mario, but that was all part of a clever ploy 
carried out by these by these adolescent hunters, these youthful hunters, to hide their tracks? Really? Just set that aside for a moment. Um, so we now know that that couldn't possibly have happened that way, as the ballistics would prove Deanne's shot to the arm was at close range. If they had shot her in the head off the back of a moving motorcycle, that, to me, is quite a marksman. And anyway, the Langier police apparently have bigger fish to fry than the murders of children. Recall that Sharon Pryor's badly beaten body was found just six weeks earlier and two miles away along Chemin's Lac. In this same La Presse article, Normand Gilles goes on to say that the Langue police have been very busy trying to solve the murder of mob figure Marcel Martel, known as Les Bras for being the right-hand man of Frank Catroni, the leading underworld figure in Montreal at that time. Martel's body was found the day after the discovery of Diri and Corbet. Martel was shot several times at the Astro Bar in Longay, then dumped in a field on, you guessed it, Chemin du Lac. Hot on the trail was Chief Inspector of the Longay Force, Pierre Robideau. Robideau was also assigned to the Diri Corbet and Sharon prior cases, so Robideau had his hands full. We know who committed the murder of Martel. We have eyewitnesses. We're looking for two guys, Jacques Legault, age 35, and Ronald Cormier, age 19, the manager and bouncer, respectively, at Astro Bar, against whom the coroner's warrant has been obtained. Legault was eventually charged with the murder of Marcel Martel and sentenced to 12 years. Like Deary Corbet, Sharon Pryor's murder has never been solved. And we've seen this many times before. The murders of innocents get short justice as Quebec police turn their attention to what they deem to be more important matters. This was the case with the American student Margaret Coleman in 1970, when her murder investigation was waylaid due to the October crisis. It was the same excuse in the summer of 1994, when Melanie Cabet's murder investigation was furloughed so Quebec police could focus on another Biker war. Langay in those days was a tough, bad place. We've talked before how Trois-Rivières in the 60s was a red-light district town, the sort of place you'd go to fulfill all your vices. Langay in the 70s was a mini version of that on the south shore of Montreal. Industrial parks and go-go bars. And the Lange police weren't much help at solving crimes. I've suggested before that the Lange force was incompetent. Well, 
it was more than that. They were compromised, and criminals would have known they were compromised. All the more reason to commit your crimes in Long Gay. Take, for example, Chief Inspector Robido, who in 1975 had his hands full with those three cases. In 1980, Robido became the Longay Chief of Police. The year prior, Jacques Diri begged then Minister of Justice André Bedard to transfer his daughter Diane's case from Longay to the Sarté du Québec. On October 2nd, 1979, a 17-year-old boy was accidentally shot while standing up in a duck blind along the Longay side of the St. Lawrence River. Within a month, the case was transferred from Longay to the Sarté du Québec. This was a duck hunting accident. How badly could the Langay police fuck up a duck hunting accident? Robido's arrival as chief of the Langay police coincided with a series of labor and salary disputes with the force. Police complained of long hours and overworked staff. By 1982, serious troubles were unfolding. La Presse reported that the Lange police were keeping a dossier noir, a black book of secret files. Chief Robido spoke of a, quote, profound malaise within his force and of, quote, troubling revelations. Officers began reporting to work out of uniform. Robido urged that officers were, quote, obliged to wear the uniform. He was ignored. In April 1983, Robido was caught modifying timekeeping records for a select group of police officers and fined $100. By 1987, Robido left the force and was quickly made a director general for the city of Lange. Two years later, in an apparent arson incident, Robido's brand new home in a recently completed suburban development burned to the ground. Robido ended his civic career with accusations of accepting bribes. In 1991, he was accused of receiving $165,000 in exchange for the approval of a legal zoning map changes. Make of all of that what you will. That's Longay. The text message. With a little added history, that's pretty much 
brings you up to date with where the Diary Corbet case stands at this moment. And personally, quite frankly, I'm I'm a little disappointed that it's been almost a year since the premiere of the LDS uh, documentary, and nothing has moved. And again, I'm used to being disappointed in these matters, and uh, what I'm about to tell you may offer some explanation as to why the matter has been met with investigative crickets. Before moving forward, a little explanation as to my involvement with this case. So uh, initially, I wrote about Diary Corbet because I needed podcast content, and there was so little information available about the case. My recollection was that the website Quebec Unsolved Murders had one of the only postings on Dian and Mario, and what it said, uh, most of it wrong, left you asking more questions. And this is from the website. Um, Currently, it still says this. The two young people were shot and left in a field. Diane was placed half naked on top of Mario. We know, however, that the girl was not sexually molested, but Mario was beaten. The case is still a cold case. I often preach that in the case of Quebec police in this era, a statement like, the girl was not sexually molested, must be interpreted in the most literal sense. There's no overt signs of rape. There was not conclusive evidence of sperm. Nevertheless, the chief faculty you must possess in order to discover the true nature of this sort of crime, that this was a sexual murder, was the precise gadget missing from the Langay police's toolbox, imagination. When I podcasted about the case two years ago, it was nothing more than an English translation of some articles I had found in the archives of Allo Police. I remember at the time my one suggestion was that since the shootings occurred so close to a military base that people might want to start looking for a suspect there. Much like the Quebec Unsolved post, my own suggestions merely raised more questions. Um, A listener asked the following, which is probably where we all sat, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And this listener said, is there any DNA? What details have not been publicly released? Who are the suspects? What are their stories? Did Mario have enemies? What was the relationship between Mario and Diane? Who were their friends? Was there a jealous friend? What institutions, if any, existed within the murder zone? Psycho wards? Hospitals? Prisons, halfway houses, military establishments, airports. Has this case been closed or not? How can a case like this still be cold and forgotten in 2018? More excellent questions. Six months later, when the producers of Le Dernier Soir 
asked me to offer some comments on the case. It was more my view from 30,000 feet. What did the staging suggest to me? What was my opinion of Lange uh, in that area and its force? The history of unsolved crimes in that era. This kind of stuff. And, and then the big kicker where I said something like in the episode, I said that uh, um, it will take an act of moral courage for someone to step forward and admit that they know what happened and are willing to take some responsibility. Now, if there's still doubt in anyone's mind about the calculation in that statement, I can tell you now that it was planned. Uh, the producers didn't know I was going to say it, but I did. I knew that, you know, that I really had to land it. Um, that for me was um, a Hail Mary pass, um, a plea for someone to step forward. And it, for me, I wasn't just addressing Diary Corbet. Um, that was a deliberate and desperate prayer for all Quebec cold cases. And one person did come forward. It was during the second airing of Le Dernier Soir that uh, a man contacted me, we'll call him Mike, with a story of growing up in Saint-Hubert in the mid-1970s. In the winter of 1975, Mike was living with his parents on the military base, CFB Saint-Hubert, when this happened. Recall that CFB Saint-Hubert is right across the street from the Diri Corbet dump site. It was a nice, quiet, sunny day in the middle of the afternoon, most probably Saturday or Sunday. It might have been February or March 1975. I'm not quite sure. Because the weather was mild, I tend to think that we were close to the month of March. A group of friends decided to go out into the woods in the back of CFB Saint-Hubert to play hockey on a shallow pond of water. I was there, though I don't remember having my skates on. Um, some of the others had skates and some were playing with boots. I do remember that someone lent me a stick the goals were defined by a pair of boots at each end. At one point, while we were playing hockey, we heard a single gunshot that hit one of the boots that we were using for goals. We saw Danny. Someone said that he had a twenty-two. He was about a hundred feet away. I remember him roaring with laughter. He didn't approach us, but kept on his way, going to wherever he was going. I don't remember what the others did, but I left not wanting to see him on his way back. 
Danny terrorized all the kids on the base at the time. He was a bully. Danny liked to scare other kids. When he was on the skating rink, he would deliberately do slap shots that would hit the boards right in front of you just to scare and warn you to get out of his way. That's who Danny was. A year later, we were all surprised to learn that Danny had committed a murder. Danny's not his real name. He was a juvenile at the time, so we want to be careful. I've posted online a map that Mike drew of the area where this incident occurred with the hockey rink and the Deary Corbet dump site circled in red. They're about 300 meters or a thousand feet apart from each other. And I've also put up a photograph that my sister took of my brother and I playing pond hockey in Montreal in that era, probably 1975. Um, it's just on the edge of the St. Lawrence, so the St. Lawrence floods and creates these rinks. Um, and in it, you can see I'm in goal, uh, I think, and uh, there's some boots standing in for goalposts, much like that day when Danny allegedly took a shot at the boots in St. Hubert. It's a very, very common thing to do. According to Mike, Danny lived on Pine Circle, which is now Rue Leary, on the CFB St. Hubert base um, at the time of the Deary Corbet murders. You could, um, you could cut through a path on the base. You can almost see it to this day on a map. That's, it's a direct shot, a direct half mile from the Deary Corbet dump site a direct half mile uh, th through the path across the main road, the one that starts with a V, I forget it, a little up Roland Terrien, which is paved today, but at that time was, remember, wooded and, and like gravel road, and, and you're there. Take a shot at somebody, you could easily escape through the woods, through the path, and you're home. A friend of Mike's ran into Danny years later. This this would have been after Danny had served time for that manslaughter incident. We'll get into that. Danny told the friend that the incident, the manslaughter incident from 1976, uh, it happened a year after the Deary Corbet uh, murders. We'll get to that too. And Danny told a friend, quote, it was an accident that the gun had gone off accidentally and that his friend was dead, end quote. As well, three friends were contacted who ran into Danny in a nearby park on the base the night of the manslaughter incident. At the time, Danny, again, he admitted that he had killed his friend, but he insisted that it was an accident. Now, <clears throat> This was the point in the story where I became very interested in Danny 
and looking again into the Deary Corbet case. first question was who did Danny murder in 1976 the the internet newspaper archives proved no use uh, because Danny was uh, an anonymous juvie so the the incident wasn't easy to identify we didn't find anything Mike was certain that um, there would be mention of it in the Quebec tabloids in 1976, but he didn't know how to find the article. So uh, after sending Mike to comb the Banque archives, um, the Quebec library, I put in a request with Corrections Canada for any parole information on Danny. We guessed he probably ended up a career offender with a long history of crimes. And uh, we didn't want Mike making this uh, request uh, FOIA laws require disclosure to the inmate um, as to who is making the information request. And um, um, I, I've done this routinely several times. Mike um, Mike had been Danny's neighbor um, on the airport base in Saint-Hubert. At this stage of things, we didn't want him outed. It didn't take long for Mike to quickly find what we were looking for in the uh, Journal de Montréal. The victim in the 1976 shooting was a 19-year-old named Ralph Edwards. So with the victim's name, we were able to obtain autopsy, coroner reports, other medical legal information about Ralph Edwards. And uh, around this time, Corrections Canada got back to us and provided the following interesting response. They said, um, please note that the Parole Board of Canada cannot give access to any decisions rendered prior to November 1st, 1992, in accordance with our procedures and with the corrections and Conditional Release Act. Therefore, we are unable to provide the decisions regarding the first sentence of the offender for manslaughter. However, (laughs) here's the kicker. However, please note that the offender has completed a second sentence concerning offenses of theft and driving. This second sentence occurred after November 1st. 1992. And as such, uh, such we would uh, be able to provide the decisions of this latter sentence, if you wish. <laughs> so we guessed right. Danny had been a lifelong offender. Um, and if you've seen parole decision files, you know that they always start with this detailed account, this description of the criminal's long offense history. So we were fairly confident that the theft and driving decision registries would offer like a backdoor window into the 1976 murder of Ralph Edwards.
I'd originally thought of this as a two-part podcast, but um, uh, consider this intermission. We're going to do the whole thing. Uh, so go get yourself a cup of coffee, uh, you know, take a pee, <laughs> whatever you need to do. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll give you um, part two, the killing of Ralph Edwards. Hey guys, Gronk here, calling a 30-second hair huddle. When it comes to tackling hair loss, Hims has you covered. From clinically proven regrowth treatments to thickening shampoo and conditioner. Just go to 4 for a free consultation. Then a licensed medical provider can help you with your game plan. If prescribed, Hims ships directly to your door. Get your hair back in the game with Hims. Try today and get a 90-day money-back guarantee at 4 Just go to 4 slash podcast. That's 4 slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and important safety information. Unlike other automakers, we at Ford don't think you should need a 20-minute tutorial to open your glove box. So we made our technology easy to use by making our vehicles available with Blue Cruise hands-free driving, Sync 4, and the Ford Pass app. And the best part? They just work. Built for America. Built Ford proud. Optional features listed. On the afternoon of Thursday, May 13th, 1976, Denny and Ralph Edwards approached an acquaintance, 18-year-old Christian Lamoureux, looking for a car to use so they could pull a job in Sherbrooke. I knew someone who would lend us a car for the night, offered Lamoureux in testimony. The three went off to Place des Ormeaux, where they secured a car from a guy named Pierre Trepanier. At 17, Danny was the youngest of the three. 19-year-old Ralph was the oldest. Lamoureux didn't know them well, but Danny and Ralph were friends, and both spoke English. They then went back to Danny's sister's apartment at 149 Turgeon in Languay. By this point, Danny was probably no longer living with his parents at the military base in Saint-Hubert. They drank some beer, smoked a joint and some hash before heading to Sherbrooke for the holdup. Lamoureux stated that Danny had drawn a map of the restaurant they were going to rob, the Marché du Nord in Sherbrooke. In Danny's testimony, he stated that it was Ralph who made the map. Danny provided two firearms, a 32 caliber revolver, and a 410 gauge rifle. Lamoureux and Danny both testified that they had never been to Sherbrooke before. So was the caper Ralph's idea? The trip to Sherbrooke wasn't easy. 
The beater they borrowed stalled and backfired along the way. The three were inexperienced, and the robbery only yielded a measly $500. Heading back to Longay, while Danny drove, Edwards and Lamoureux crouched down on the floor of the car for fear of being spotted by the police. Ralph Edwards was in possession of the firearms, as well as a bag containing the loot. At some point, Danny said he heard a click behind him where Edwards was hiding. Danny then asked Edwards to give him the guns and the suitcase, which Danny said Ralph did without protest. This trip back from Sherbrooke was also an odyssey. The beater continued to stall. They became paranoid they'd be stopped by the police at the highway toll booths. So they got off the main highway and started taking the back roads along Route 112. They picked up a hitchhiker and dropped them in Chambly. They stopped several times once for a couple of beers at a roadside bar. They were in constant fear of passing police cars. All of this is to say that the trip back to Longay took a lot of time. A lot of time to think. Time enough for Ralph to sneak off at the roadside bar and make a phone call. Both Danny and Christian Lamoureux's testimony agree that the car broke down near Route 112 and the Saint-Hubert Airport. Keep in mind this is just on the other side of the Deary Corbet dump site and the location of the hockey pond shooting. Those incidents occurred on the east border of CFB Saint-Hubert. The car broke down on the west border, a little over a mile away. The three youths abandoned the vehicle, this was the early morning, the next morning, May 14th, and began to walk single file along the road. Immediately, they spotted a police cruiser heading toward them, so they, they cut up the stairwell at the junction of 112 and 116, in those days, that stairwell, and it still exists to this day, the stairwell led up to the old Longay train station along Chemin de l'Air Park. At this point, according to Christian Lamoureux's testimony, suddenly I heard a shot. I saw Ralph, who had fallen to his knees and then crashed to the ground. Lamoureux added that he saw Danny hit Ralph in the face with the rifle butt, and he repeatedly shouted at him to stop. At the inquest, Danny tried to argue that he was merely attempting to get rid of the rifle, so he threw it in the direction of Ralph when it accidentally discharged. Then, a few seconds later, it discharged again. In testimony, Danny stated that he was, quote, 
freaking out. Lamoureux stated that Danny hit Ralph repeatedly with the rifle butt. Coroner, did you have words with him? Danny, no, we said nothing. Coroner, you said that you shot him a second time and then hit him in the head. Danny, yes. Coroner, for no reason. Danny, no, because I had lost control. Coroner, did you hit Christian Lamoureux? Danny, no, I never hit him. Throughout the coroner's inquiry, the news media kept reminding everyone that Ralph Edwards was a black illegal immigrant from Trinidad. Ralph Edwards, une noire de 19 ans qui habitait illégalement au pays depuis l'an passé. Ralph Edwards, une noire, a black of 19 years, who has been living in the country illegally for the past year. The coroner's inquest ruled that Ralph Edwards died due to multiple perforations of the brain, heart, and lungs from gunshot wounds. Danny was given nine years for manslaughter and armed robbery. The motive cited was, quote, in order to get money to buy drugs. Christian Lamoureux's sentence is not known, though in court he was represented by Frank Shufi, the prominent criminal defense attorney who in 1985 was shot to death while working late one evening in his Montreal law office. I want to make it very clear that it was right around this point in the story that we went back to the producers of the Dernier Soir and um, asked them, and we shared this information with them. Um, we wanted to make sure that they weren't working on a follow-up um, or if there was a, there was plans for a, a second series um, uh to the documentary and and they in, in, informed us that they were not working on anything else and they gave us the the all clear to pursue our story as mentioned Danny's parole decisions uh, reveal that he did indeed evolve into a uh, career criminal in in 2009 Danny was denied a request for day parole. At that time, he was serving uh, six years, eight months, and 10 days for his second federal term, approximately seven years for, uh, quote, robbery, dangerous operation of a motor vehicle, and flight while pursued by a peace officer. In 2005, Danny used a loaded handgun to rob a bank of $2,000. He next, in the same occurrence. He, he next robbed a gas station of $370 and 30 packs of cigarettes using a pellet gun and a machete. When police attempted to stop Danny after the second robbery, he drove over the street curb and into a parking lot in order to evade pursuit. Uh, he then collided with another police cruiser 
before fleeing on foot. Uh, he further resisted arrest, but was finally apprehended in a physical, quote, high-risk takedown. He told police he had, quote, nothing to live for and had no means other than crime to support his addiction to pain medication. His file states that police suspected Danny of several other robberies in the area of his arrest, some of them involving an accomplice and the use of weapons and violence. The decision notes, quote, the direct correlation between alcohol and drug addictions and your violent and potentially violent criminal behavior over a period exceeding 30 years, you have not yet addressed this key contributing factor and your sporadic attendance at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings within the institution is certainly insufficient to mitigate your chronic problem in this area, close quotes. The decision further notes that Danny had a number of similar offenses, though not at the federal level, involving driving while impaired, theft and robbery, the possession and purchase of illegal drugs, violence, and attempts to escape custody. In making their decision, the parole board cited Danny's general statistical information on recidivism, noting there was a 50% chance that Danny would reoffend within three years of release. And then finally, on, on the shooting of Ralph Edwards in 1976, uh, the moment we've all been waiting for, the parole board had this to say, and it's very lengthy, so I'll just start here. In terms of violence, you received your first federal sentence of nine years in 1977 for manslaughter and armed robbery in relation to offenses committed in the province of Quebec with two accomplices in order to get money to buy drugs. You were apparently all under the influence of drugs and alcohol at the time. Although there are varying versions of the details surrounding this offense on your file, it is reported that you entered a restaurant establishment with a loaded 38 revolver in hand and demanded money while your accomplices waited in a stolen vehicle. When met with resistance by the restaurant owner, your accomplices entered the premises in an effort to assist you. You were successful at robbing, robbing the facility and fleeing the scene. However, the vehicle broke down and you continued on foot. You were eventually spotted by police, at which time you shot one of your accomplices twice, then hit him in the head with the butt of your gun. The victim succumbed to his injuries. While it is not clear why you shot your accomplice, you have offered varied explanations in the past that suggest that the offense was accidental as a result of panic, 
intoxication, and not being aware that the firearm was loaded. Today, you indicate that you were just playing. However, it is also mentioned in your file that you may have shot the victim because you believed he had reported you and the robbery to authorities. Your limited recollection and reluctance to openly discuss these offenses did not permit to elucidate this matter any further today. In 2012, Danny was given statutory release with conditions not to consume drugs or alcohol and to avoid certain persons. At the time of this writing, this podcast, Danny is not currently an inmate at any federal institution in Canada. What did Ralph say? Let's go back to the coroner's inquiry. Several attorneys attempted to extract from Christian Lamoureux the exact nature of an assumed verbal dispute between Danny and Ralph. One of the attorneys asked if there was an argument, words exchanged after the car broke down. Christian says that he doesn't know because he doesn't understand English. But you understand. Hold up, the attorney says. You understand an argument. Ralph is who? Do you recall his name? Edwards. Is he a white or black guy? Black. Did they exchange words? No. Do you think it's possible there was a dispute between the two? No. So you're on the road, walking on foot, after the car broke down. It's Danny who has the money in his pockets, right? Yes. And there wasn't a discussion about sharing the money at this point. No, we had not talked about it. Well, it's unique that having arrived at this situation on the way to Danny's, that you didn't have a discussion about dividing the money. Yes. Qu'est-ce que le noir dit? What do we have so far to connect the 1975 Diri Corbet murders to the 1976 shooting of Ralph Edwards? Well, always begin with geography. Danny can be placed at three locations within roughly a little over a mile of the Diri Corbet dump site. At the time of the murders, he's living a half mile away from the dump site. A few months before the murders, he's at the hockey pond, a thousand feet from the dump site. And about a year later, he shoots Ralph Edwards along a Chemin de l'Airport, about 1.2 miles from the Deary Corbet site. And um, I posted a map online. You can check that out www.teresalor.com t 
T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E point com. There's the curiosity of the May 14th, 1976 shooting of Ralph Edwards occurring very close to the May 20th, 1975 anniversary date of the Dittery Corbet murders. Did the car break down, agitate people, stir up memories? Did Ralph say something about this event? A rifle is the murder weapon in both shootings. Deary Corbet are shot with a 22, and Edwards is shot with a 410. And then there are the crime scenes, which on first consideration seem quite different. Edwards, we imagine, is a quite chaotic scene. Danny was, quote, freaking out. While with Deary Corbet, uh, there are there are elements of staging, uh, one body placed on top of the other, as if to uh, simulate sexual relations, maybe. Yet, with both crimes, um, there seems to be this one thing in common, this element of overkill. Was it necessary to shoot Mario six times? And why was Ralph beaten repeatedly with the butt of a rifle? Why shoot Ralph in the back, then beat him, then shoot him in the head? All the while with Christian urging Danny to stop. Was Eric Villette right? Remember, we talked about him in the beginning. And he says, was the meeting in the woods accidental? Was there a confrontation? Did the shooters have accounts to settle? Was it the gratuitous crime of a future psychopath? While the documentary was airing on Radio Canada for the second time, I started corresponding about the Deary Corbet case with a criminologist friend of mine. Um, he, he became intrigued, so I sent him the file of documents I had um, on the case. And then he began to watch the program, and after he'd finished, I asked him his opinion of the case. And um, I should mention that this isn't uh, any criminologist um, and it isn't someone I've ever referenced before, so it's not Kim Rosmo, it's not uh, uh, it's, it's not Sasha Reed. Um, he's a leading expert on sexual murder. Um, and he thought the suspect presented in the television program, the, the kid who went on to become a leader in organized crime, crime was, quote, probably not the murderer in this case. And then he goes on, quote, yes, he's probably highly antisocial, a murderer and a guy who has been involved in a lot of crime, but I don't think he would have done something like that. To me, it's the sexual element that is the key here. 
As you mentioned, it's very immature the way it was done. At the same time, the offender needed to do something sexual to Deary, as opposed to leaving a crime scene right away after shooting them. It's not random. Now, admittedly, what we know about Danny so far also does not suggest that he was a sexual murderer. But leave that aside just for um, the moment. What we next learned was only discovered within the last month while putting this story together. Uh, I haven't... I haven't been sitting on this for very long, and if I had any faith that they would have acted upon it, I would have gone to the police immediately. While preparing um, for an update on the uh, Deary Corbet case, uh, this year marks the 45th anniversary of their unsolved murders. Uh, I think we're 10 days away from May 20th. Um, so I went back and I read the police files, uh, the documents provided to me originally by the producers of the television documentary in December 2018. Uh, at some point in the original 1970s investigation, Chief Inspector Robido, he of the burned down house and planning bribes, was introduced to a young informant. This young informant from the Longay neighborhood was the original source for suggesting that the other kid, the one who grew up to be the underworld figure, may have murdered Diam and uh, Mario. So this young informant told Robido many things. For instance, he told him that young people used to stand in the woods at the south end of Roland Terrien Boulevard, the area where the bodies were discovered, and use rifles, quote, such as 22s, 410s, or others, for target practice. Then one day, he told Robido a story about something that happened weeks after the murders. So the weeks pass, and one day, I decide to go hunting. I'm talk, talking me, H-E, and T-C. We're walking in the woods when shots were fired. Bullets whistle by either side of us. So I saw two guys, one black and one white. I started to think me and the others should do the same, fire back. So then I came out of the woods and I ran home. That same evening, I went to see Mrs. Deary. That same evening. So I could explain to her what had happened. But I was afraid of going to the police. So I kept it secret. Alors, je vis deux gares. Une noire et un blanc. We went back and checked with one of the other boys from this story, T.C. He confirmed that it did occur the way the informant described it, a black guy and a white guy. 
When asked if he recalled them talking and in what language, he said, They seem to speak English. What did Ralph Edwards say to Danny the night of the 1976 shooting? Why beat someone with a rifle butt and shoot them twice in front of a witness? Why risk certain arrest? Unless Ralph mentioned another murder. The murders of Diane Deary and Mario Corbet from the previous year. Did Ralph threaten to go to the police if he hadn't contacted them already and tell them of those murders if Danny didn't hand over the robbery money? Did Christian Lamoureux hear some of this but pretend to not comprehend English? Did words escalate to the point where Ralph taunted Danny about his actions the night of the Deary Corbet murders? $500 is not enough to die for. You don't freak out over $500, bludgeon someone in the face, and shoot them dead. We end where we began. This theory has holes. It isn't completely satisfying. The criminologist suggests a sexual murderer. The offender needed to do something sexual to Deary. But Danny didn't have an incarceration history of sexual violence. Though we don't know what we don't know. Because of his history of incarceration, maybe there wasn't time for Danny to develop into a full-blown sexual predator. Maybe he was a sexual murderer. He just was never caught for those crimes. We also don't know Danny's whereabouts from 1982 to 1987. Those years are a blackout, and there are any number of unsolved murders in Quebec from that time, including the Longay area. Maybe another possibility was the sexual element of folie à deux. Did Ralph, who was two years older, two years can seem like an eternity at that age, provoke Danny? Was there something inherently embarrassing about what happened the night of May 20th, 1975? Was Ralph the sexual murderer and Danny the one caught up in his sexual deviance, with Ralph urging on the younger Danny? Did Danny commit the murders but Ralph the sexual assaults? Did Ralph force Danny to do something he did not want to do? More questions. Another puzzle. In the the Dernier Soir documentary, one of the sisters, I think it's Diane's 
recalls that the night Dion disappeared, she went to sleep, the sister watching the rotating beacon atop a Place Ville Marie. It's a four-way searchlight you can see from at least a hundred miles away. It's become sort of a protective light for Montrealers. Um, on the other side of the mountain, where I was living at the time, I used to fall asleep watching that searchlight too. She said on that night, Tuesday, May 20th, 1975, she hoped that the searchlight would help Diane find her way home. This is who killed Teresa. It's mostly maps today that I put up on the website, teresalor.com. Um, listen and follow us on the podcast platforms. We're on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, etc. Um, if you like the show, please uh, rate us high, share it, talk about it. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Teresa Lore, at T H E R E S A A L L O R E. And my personal Twitter handle is at JusticeGuy, at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. There's a Facebook page. It's just called uh, Who Killed Teresa, the podcast. And we're on uh, Instagram, some other platforms. There's, um, including the uh, addition to the website, there's a YouTube channel. If you just look on Teresa Lore, you'll find it. Um, long episode today. We're clocking in at a minute 20. Um, so I think that's enough. I hope you enjoyed this update on the Dury Corbet case. Doesn't mean I'm right. Just means I got one more thing to offer. Just when you thought things were resolved. Um, or <laughs> resolved to in conclusion. Um, Here's something else. Um, rumor has it there's a yet a third theory that I have yet to catch wind of, but we'll see. Uh, thanks to Eric uh, from Historiquement Logique um, and his contributions. I certainly enjoyed uh, reading his very in-depth analysis on the Diderot Corbet case, and I've posted a link on my site to um, his website um, as well um, in any other case I referenced um, in the story there are links online uh, to uh, the sources of those um, stories that's all I have today uh, hope you're well hope everybody's healthy and safe uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa I'm your host John Allure, and have yourselves a great, great day.
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True Crime on A&E, with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime, every Thursday and Friday on A&E.